Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. A lot of you have been asking about uh, analysis or conversation about the election slash selection slash rigging marathon slash Form 45 election, whatever you may want to call it, whatever is your uh, term of choice. Um, and I largely refrained from commenting a whole lot because there were a lot of things I was personally uh, thinking about to get my thoughts together about what exactly happened and what's going on. And two things, um, at least at a personal level, sort of struck out to me. Um, and that's why we're having this conversation with a historian. The first one was that you have instances in the past, in my mind at least, 1977, where a disputed election, a very difficult scenario for the country all of these things combined to create this crisis that ultimately led to a coup. Um, and at that point in time, if you just take a snapshot of 77, it seems like, you know, the Iranian revolution hadn't happened. 79 was still a few years away of the events of 1979. So Pakistan was a very different place in 77 uh, as opposed to what eventually happened following the coup. That was something on my mind. Um, and then the second thing was that it it sort of struck out as a big, big red signal to me that every major party wanted to rule the provinces, uh, but not the federation. And what does that mean uh, about the health of the federation? Or what does that signal about the health of the federation is a question in my mind um, that perhaps we'll get a bit deeper into as well. If you're on YouTube, you already see Dr. Ilhan Niaz is on the screen. Uh, he's a historian, uh, now currently an overseas Pakistani, observing uh, events from far away in Liberia, which a stable democracy, as he was describing it prior to a sitting record. Uh, so Dr. Niaz, thank you once again uh, for gracing us with your presence. I hope all is well in Liberia. And I know you went through a pretty decent election season there. Uh, and now are watching far and from far away uh, the chaos in Pakistan. So how does that feel, uh, observing things from well, a distance? Uh, well, I mean, over here, uh, the incumbent uh, president, he lost the election and he lost it by a relatively small margin of just uh, 20,000 votes. And uh, after that, he accepted the results and uh, peacefully transferred power to his successor, who is currently the president of uh, Liberia. So it was, and this was a very significant development for Liberia because these were, I think, the first elections since the civil war ended where uh, there was no uh, international peacekeeper presence. So it was a big uh, challenge to ensure that uh, Liberia itself would be able to manage a peaceful and legitimate transfer of power from one government to the next. And that has happened. And uh, of course, in the Pakistani context, uh, it's uh, really remarkable uh, given that we haven't uh, really ever managed such a uh, trouble-free and legitimate transfer of power from one government to the next uh, in our uh, 75 odd years on this planet. So let's begin, you know, I, I know you were in Pakistan recently as well. Um, and then, of course, you've been following the news and the results and the for government formation process uh, from afar. How, what has stood out to you or perhaps what hasn't stood out to you or hasn't surprised you about how things have gone? I mean, I was joking with somebody, I'll give you some my my own context that, you know, 
in 2018, I remember, uh, you know, Form 45 was just on blank pieces of paper, just signed with a thumbprint, and it wasn't an official document even. Uh, and this time, at least we have official Form 45s online on, you know, various websites and WhatsApps. So I was joking that perhaps that's an improvement. But, you know, it was to me a, a farce, uh, stood out as a farce, the whole process and how it happened. Um, and it was something, at least, you know, in my memory, I was familiar with from 2018 as well, that the results start coming in and then all of a sudden there's a pause um, and nobody knows what's going on. And then Form 47 start emerging that are allegedly so far. And there these are cases in the tribunals about the difference. But you clearly saw things shift. Um, and then since then, it's been a chaotic uh, few days with the Rawal Pindi Commissioner, all of that. So from your point of view, uh, how did you see everything uh, play out, uh, both on election day and post-elections? Uh, I think that the uh, amount of pre-poll rigging that took place in this particular election was pretty extraordinary by even Pakistani standards. Uh, when you suggested that we should need to discuss this, so I was, you know, reviewing my notes and stuff about earlier Pakistani transitions, and uh, really the only, uh, you know, comparable uh, election seasons that I could find were the referendums conducted by General Zia and General Musharraf. Uh, and the partyless elections that were conducted during the Zia regime. Uh, in terms of the fact that the main opposition party at that time being the People's Party uh, is practically a banned organization. Uh, it cannot run candidates openly. Its uh, leaders are either in jail or in exile or otherwise running uh, scared lives. Uh, its uh, workers are also largely either locked up or under intense uh, scrutiny by the state machinery. So uh, the only, uh, you know, really uh, basis of comparison going into uh, February 8, uh, 2024, were these uh, military regime organized referendums and elections. So in that respect, I think that uh, the delay in terms of having the elections the violation of the 90-day requirement for conducting elections laid down by the Constitution, first at the provincial level, then at the federal level. All of this pointed to uh, a realization amongst the establishment forces that uh, they had a lot of work to do to, to basically soften up the PTI to the point where it would be safe to hold an election uh, and uh, then have some kind of uh, relatively smooth appearance of a new government taking over. So that uh, process does not have, uh, did not actually work out as uh, the people who were uh, making these plans had thought. Uh, in fact, uh, the day before the elections, uh, there was a very interesting article published in the news which effectively announced the result that was going to happen the following day, uh, almost like you know an election in a Soviet socialist republic. Are you referring and, to uh, Sohail Vadaich's Bangladesh model article, or are you uh, talking about something? No, no. Else? Uh, this is uh, a news article 
which basically stated that a government body has conducted, uh, and it was uh, written by Umar Chima for uh, the News International. Uh, this was February 7th. So in it, uh, it says that, you know, going by this official assessment, PMLN is likely to win between 115 and 132 National Assembly seats. And it goes on to, you know, extol the virtues of the PMLL, uh, which has showed, quote unquote, extra care in awarding tickets and stuff like that down to the local level. And it goes on to say that, you know, this survey was conducted scientifically so as to avoid any error in the results. <laughs> so uh, when I saw this, I just found it hilarious because, uh, you know, uh, you hear of these things occurring uh, in, uh, you know, totalitarian states or stuff like that. And uh, Pakistan is not that type of a state. Perhaps some people would like it to be, but uh, the people want it to be something else. So uh, that result that was announced before the election, I think showed the confidence that, okay, now we, that we have substantially leveled the opposition to the point where the PTI effectively cannot campaign as a party. They cannot hold corner meetings without being harassed. They cannot actually uh, launch campaigns with candidates flying their own banners. They are not able to call out any uh, rallies. They are not allowed to advertise. Uh, they cannot even be mentioned on the mainstream media. So I think a lot of people in the mainstream media in Pakistan seem to have suddenly started using the banned words PTI and Imran Khan as the results uh, poured in. Maybe that gave them a little bit of courage. But those same people for weeks leading into the election had effectively you know, uh, stopped even mentioning the name of the leader or the party even if they could. So that level of uh, pre-poll rigging is extraordinary by Pakistani standards. And what is, has been even more extraordinary is the fact that a very substantial chunk of the electorate, a sizable plurality of the electorate, effectively subverted the attempt to subvert the elections and organized itself in such a way using comms, using digital media, I think you've also written about this, to create a situation where the analog autocrats thought that everything is fine and we can go ahead and have this election and it will produce the result that we have already communicated is expected from the nation the day before. And uh, what they got was a uh, comeuppance of sorts that the people, though their momentum was dented and certainly uh, it was uh, diminished, the net result is not what uh, obviously the PMLN or the People's Party or their uh, current patrons uh, would have wanted. So uh, that has also been an extraordinary. I, I don't think that the people of Pakistan have ever fought back in this way either. So two things are very clear, that the uh, extent of the rigging is extraordinary, pre-poll rigging especially, and uh, the way in which the electorate has reacted to that is also extraordinary. 
And this does not bode well for stability because what it now clearly shows is that maintaining a facade of a civilian setup is becoming increasingly untenable for the establishment. And whenever that has happened in the past, it has typically triggered a military takeover when they realize that, you know, we cannot get the result that we hope to get from allowing some kind of uh, even half-baked electoral e exercise from taking place. I'll get to the historical uh, moments or parallels in, in just a moment, but, you know, you used a, a term perhaps that I will borrow, if you will permit me in future writings, the analog autocrats um, and, and, and their failures. Um, uh, but the election itself, you know, I, I sort of, uh, I think mentioned in one of our group conversations as well, reminded me of a term that, you know, my professor in grad school used to use always that um, in conflict, uh, the enemy always gets a vote. Um, and I think the Pakistani people had the vote on February 8th. And no matter what happened, uh, they decided that they wanted to send a different signal. Um, and the analog autocrats were sort of caught unawares, uh, largely because of pieces or scientific research that you alluded to, other things that were being signaled through columns that Soil Varaj, for example, the popular one he wrote, the Bangladesh model for Pakistan. Um, all of that in perhaps a way um, led to a sense of complacency as well in the PMLN, who thought this was a done deal for them. And the people of Pakistan had a different sort of view on that. But then, of course, there is the, the ongoing issue um, as well, right, of um, areas where the mandate, at least uh, on paper, on face value, clearly uh, shows signs of being stolen. I mean, I'm not very familiar with politics of the GT Road or, or Rawalpindi division, so I, I can't personally comment on what did and did not happen. But there is a big chunk of the analysts that I follow saying that things were maneuvered over there. I am from Karachi, so I understand its politics much better. And I can safely tell you that the amount of seats the MQM has won, which they announced, by the way, around 9 or 10 p.m. on election night, uh, when nobody knew what was going on, uh, raises a lot of questions about uh, what happened, because clearly we know in on the streets of Karachi, um, the sentiment was not where the results came out. Um, and again, the mandate there, questionable. Balochistan, another place uh, where you can argue and, and ask questions. Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, perhaps they couldn't do anything there for various reasons, including internal security challenges, that if they went such so far against the grain, um, things may just fundamentally go out of control. But, you know, the question I had for you was, from this analog autocratic model clearly that has shown signs of complete failure over here and it shows similar signs of failure in 2018 when the RTS was brought down. Uh, what does that tell you at, at you know as somebody who observes Pakistani politics about the the state of authoritarian capability in Pakistan? Um, one would say, at least I would say, ke, you know, incompetent autocrats perhaps is a blessing for us. Incompetence seeps into the autocratic model as well, much like other issues on the economy, on education and healthcare. Um, but on the other side, it also makes me very concerned because incompetent autocrats then mean, or analog autocrats then mean that they will default to the kinetic option 
in a much more uh, crazier way, so to speak, right? So you're seeing blocks on the internet and things like that. It's just the beginning in my mind. How do you see the incompetence of the analog autocrats and its implications uh, for the broader uh, discourse and, and the broader democratic challenge for Pakistan? I think uh, that when it comes to trying to uh, control an election outcome, uh, if we follow the uh, hybrid model that was followed in the 50s, that was followed in a sense in the 1980s and 1990s and has again been followed since 2008, uh, that actually requires at least some autonomy to be given to the civilian actors. And it also requires uh, the civilian actors that are aligned with the military to possess enough of momentum that they can get within a striking distance of winning an election on their own. And then the additional uh, 10, 15, 20% that they might need in terms of a boost can be achieved through pre-poll rigging. And in uh, rare cases, if like really, you know, it goes badly in some constituencies, maybe you can have some poll day or even post-poll uh, rigging in terms of the results. So what has, I think, happened over here is that the margin uh, was effectively too large to have been easily rigged. But because the PTI uh, had been decapitated, because it had been practically banned from competing as a party, especially after the Supreme Court upheld uh, the ECP's decision on the symbol. Uh, that probably led uh, our uh, fixers to think that, you know, the coast is clear and we can now go ahead and have an electoral contest. So now that they realize that that electoral contest has gone awry and the results that have emanated from this point to not just a hung parliament, but even an increasingly fractured uh, political map of the federation, that should give them pause because it is their interference that is actually leading to these bad outcomes. So if, let's say, a free and fair election had been held on the 8th of February, given the results that have come out, I don't think anyone would seriously contend that you would have probably seen a simple majority PTI government emerging in the Punjab, KP, and the center. That would have been the result of a free and fair election. Now that we've ended up in this mess, where in a way no one has enough of a majority to form a government at the center, where the majority in the Punjab is very slender, we have a situation where this entire system might break down in a couple of months or a couple of uh, years. And that might require an early election. But an early election under these circumstances will almost certainly lead to an even larger PTI majority, one that perhaps uh, cannot be contained. 
So whenever that prospect has stared our leaders in the face, they have indeed decided to pull the plug, impose martial law, uh, enact uh, draconian measures to suppress political dissent and criticism, and effectively delay then until they feel safe enough uh, to hold an election. And that typically happens many, many years down the line. So then you are in an open uh, military rule dictatorship type uh, scenario. So under the present circumstances, the political situation in Pakistan is essentially very similar to a political situation that has triggered military interventions in the past. The problem here, of course, is that how exactly will they enforce the restrictions on communication and assembly and media and the digital landscape? Because these things were not really present in that way when Musharraf took over. They were not present when Ziar took over, obviously. Certainly in the 1950s, 60s, that was not really an issue in that sense. You would you know, effectively stop press anytime you felt like it. So that is, a, I think, a technical problem. And what I'm afraid is, as you have pointed out, that they are going to try to effectively disconnect Pakistan from the wider global social media landscape. And maybe they think Pakistan can have a Chinese-style internet, which probably is not very viable in our context, uh, because in order to have a Chinese-style internet, you then also need a Chinese-style uh, domestic cyber capability to sustain that kind of an internet infrastructure closed off from the rest of the world. We don't obviously have that. So uh, it's going to be a great big mess if they try to you know, pull the plug on it. You're likely to see bans. I remember uh, there was a ban on YouTube for many years. The amount of damage that did to the Pakistani startup ecosystem, businesses, influencers, everybody was immense. Now maybe we'll ban uh, TikTok and we'll ban Twitter. Again, the amount of damage we'll do to ourselves by disconnecting will be immense. And it's not clear that it will actually change the public sentiment at this point. Yeah, it's the internet issue is just hilarious in that sense that, you know, I can personally tell you from multiple sources that I've heard that some of the most powerful men in Pakistan refer to social media, Shatani media. Um, and they would like uh, a China-style model, in fact, have been procuring equipment and other things that allow them to implement a Chinese-style firewall. But again, I think limitations on technology, access to technology, and more importantly, in my mind, incompetence comes in the way, thankfully so. Um, so you see things like Twitter going down or being throttled, uh, people getting on VPNs to access it. Now some VPNs aren't working. So other VPNs are being tried out. The caretaker IT minister is tweeting using VPNs. The prime minister caretaker is using VPNs to tweet uh, while the country is like, what the hell is going on? I think TikTok complies uh, largely uh, with takedown offers, uh, orders um, because of its uh, Chinese, Chinese linkages as well. And it has also been throttled slash banned in the past in Pakistan. YouTube, you mentioned already, 
Um, Facebook slash Instagram is sort of less noisy. I think what they've done, at least on my newsreels that I notice, is that um, their algorithm downplays political speech uh, a lot more given Facebook's own challenges in 2016 and onwards. So they figured out a more creative tech-led solution to reduce the type of political noise that perhaps we see on X um, at this point. So it'll be It'll be interesting to see. And I think you're right. Like it's it's one of those things that the damage will be far more significant. But switching to history now, um, you know, so a couple of uh, very uh, seasoned analysts who have been mentors to me, I've been speaking to them for the last year now, um, just to understand how they're assessing the developments and things. And a couple of them have always pointed out that they've sought or seen this be eerily similar to 1977, the disputed elections, uh, opposition gunning for a party, rigging happens, and then you kind of see that the system is just cannot function, and and Zia pulls the plug uh, on it at that point in time. You're a historian; you've seen and studied these types of elections in Pakistan in the past. What are some familiar echoes that you're hearing now from history that you think the audience should think about and know? Um, and I say this primarily because. You know, I, I we joke about this, right? Pakistan is stuck at Nazuk more roundabout or it, things keep repeating itself on the economic front. I at least think that the economy is not isolated in terms of the repetitive cycles. The broader political economy keeps repeating this really ridiculous cycle, uh, has been re uh, sort of repeating this ridiculous cycle for 75 years. So tell us and share with us as a historian uh, what are some key things that perhaps you think of from the past that uh, resonate with you today in the present about what's going on? Well, uh, I think uh, uh, one thing, if you look at 1977, uh, is that the People's Party was actually expected to win a majority, but a simple majority. And it ended up doing uh, far better then perhaps uh, the government's own estimates about uh, the elections. While the PNA, it polled a very substantial number of votes. Uh, if I remember correctly, it polled over 6 million votes to about 10, 11 million for the People's Party. Uh, and they had huge rallies and huge gatherings going into the election. So they felt that the People's Party winning effectively three-fourths of the seats indicated that they had been uh, extensive rigging by the People's Party. And mind you, back then, there was no caretaker set up. So basically, the incumbent government would be expected to conduct the election while it was still in office. Uh, the People's Party government responded to that agitation by cracking down on it, by arresting the leadership of the PNA. Uh, then, of course, they also talked to it when the unrest did not on with the arrest of the leaders. And there appeared to be some sort of an agreement maturing between these parties when the military then intervenes and takes over and effectively then sends everybody home. So I think the critical lesson from that episode uh, is that the immense popularity that Bhutto had, which was undeniable, uh, did not actually save him from being executed 
via what is widely now considered a judicial murder uh, by the regime of General Zia. And that, of course, is a warning to all civilian leaders who have come after that as well. And this is a uh, warning which, at present, might have to be to something carried out by the military against Imran Khan if he remains adamant, if he refuses to enter into any sort of a compromise. Because I think, you know, they now realize that the day he's released from jail is going to be a huge outpouring of public sympathy for him. And the cases against him, uh, whatever their individual merits might be, the way that the results of those cases were announced literally leading up to the election itself uh, have caused many people to doubt the process behind those verdicts. If so, I may interrupt you here, right? I mean, a couple of things I want to just quickly interject. Uh, one, it's again a recurring pattern. Every time you jail a leader, his popularity soars or her popularity soars. And when you release them, they come out looking far stronger and far more dangerous than they were going into jail. That's a repeating pattern we see in Pakistani history. And on the cases itself, I was like, if in the run-up to elections, you've stooped so low to go into the personal marriage affairs of a former prime minister and whether or not the menstrual cycle of his wife aligned in the way where it's, wherein which the divorce timeline was correct according to Islamic law, then, I mean, let's be honest, even the more conservative Muslims in Pakistani society were disgusted by what was playing out in front of them. And in, in that way, the overreach perhaps convinced even those on the fence to go out on February 8th and vote for Imran Khan primarily because they were disgusted by the way in which he was being treated uh, through these cases. Yes. So that actually is a uh, very uh, important factor in this that the way in which the pre-poll was carried out was not very subtle. So it is reminiscent of the pre-poll rigging during you know, referendums and those sorts of things. But still, people had access to information. They had the ability to make up their own minds. And clearly, uh, they felt that this kind of justice that was being to the former prime minister was unwarranted and unfounded. And that result has now come back in the form of an electoral verdict. So uh, it's not a uh, very good thing to do to overplay your hand either. And perhaps the reasoning on that side would have been that, you know, if we basically uh, disqualify him at multiple levels and give him so many sentences, so then it will be absolutely clear that he is never becoming prime minister again. So if there are some people who might still be inclined to vote for him or his affiliated independents, they will then uh, you know, get demoralized and sit at home because, after all, the general impression of the PTI was that you know it's a personality cult. So if the uh, great leader is not on the ballot, if he cannot become prime minister, uh, then... Uh, what is the point of the PTI voter going out and uh, voting for him? And this also, you know, in a way, indicates 
that the PTI is actually no longer just a personality cult. It is no longer simply about Imran Khan as prime minister or president or whatever, that it has actually evolved into a fairly organic mass party that represents the aspirations of younger Pakistanis, of educated Pakistanis, and of middle-class Pakistanis, both the urban and the rural middle classes. So that is something which I think is structurally very important, going beyond the fact that Imran is on the ballot or not. Because in Pakistan, you know, we have a very uh, sort of disdainful view of our average voter. We think, you know, they are going to vote for a personality, they're going to vote for a symbol, they don't or they're then going to vote on the basis of their kinship or their tribe or their sect. But what Pakistanis have demonstrated is in this election that a sizable chunk of them are really going to vote on the basis of national issues. And they're going to find a way to vote for a party that they believe is going to represent them fairly on those issues, as opposed to other parties that are uh, more patrimonial or uh, clientelistic than the PTI. So this is something, again, very interesting, that I think that the PTI now has a vote base very similar to what the People's Party achieved in the 60s and 70s. And that vote base is something that uh, will transcend uh, the uh, life of Imran Khan himself. So that is a very important development, that that party is here to stay. That's, that's fascinating. So going back to history, you mentioned that, you know, agreement between the PNA and the People's Party was imminent. Um, and then the, the plug was pulled. And, and of course, the Zia dictatorship comes in 1979, the Iranian revolution happens, the world changes and the rest as we all know it is, is history from, you know, lived history, at least to my generation and to many, a significant chunk of Pakistanis, which also like, you know, uh, I always try to remind people that half of Pakistan was not born um, when the nuclear tests were conducted. So this is why it's also important to have them understand the, the the past a bit better as well. What are some other echoes that stand out to you? You said person, uh, popularity is no guarantee for security for a popular leader. That threat, obviously, Imran Khan and his party keep repeating that there's a threat against him. And of course, there has been an assassination attempt uh, televised that we all saw a, a few months ago as well. Um, other things that stand out to you as a historian that you're like, you know, these are instances from previous elections, whether in the run-up to the Ayub era or in the aftermath of the Ayub era, that perhaps we ought to get some lessons out of. Well, I, I think that uh, the Ayub era election is uh, a very important one, the one between him and Fatma Jinnah. Uh, because in those elections, which were obviously very tightly controlled by the administration, the final vote was only going to be made by about uh, 80,000 of the basic Democrats. But Fatma Jinnah, wherever she went, she was greeted by spontaneous large crowds. It was clear that she was by far the more popular of the two candidates. And in a mass vote, almost certainly would have won that election. Without the internet, without X, without social media. Without, without any such thing. 
But what was critical was the basis of her support. So she basically had a lot of support in the urban areas and in East Pakistan. And in many ways, the way that election turned out convinced people, especially in East Pakistan, that there was simply no way that their voice was going to be heard by the Pakistani state. So when we think about, you know, the eventual uh, secession of East Pakistan, that election plays a very, very important role in terms of uh, acting as a final disillusionment, if you will, of uh, many people in East Pakistan with the possibility that uh, they can modify the composition of the government of Pakistan through their vote. Including Sheikh so, Mujib, who used to be a, a mentee to HSO Rawardi, and this election informed and in, was an inflection point for people like him who ultimately led the movement in Bangladesh. Absolutely. So I think over here, we are facing something very similar. Uh, a huge number of first-time voters have come out. Uh, a large number of younger people have organized themselves in order to defy uh, extraordinary sanctions on the party of their choice, the PTI. And the net result, of course, is disappointing because of what has happened in the Punjab and uh, the likelihood of a PDM2 at the center. And this could be a good turning point if the democratic process is respected next time around. Alternatively, if what we see is a deliberate attempt to now frustrate public sentiment, then you could well have a situation where a large chunk of the electorate basically gives up on the existing system altogether. So there is a very serious threat of then a kind of anti-Ayub type movement emerging in Pakistan, and that can snowball into large-scale violence, protests uh, across the country. So I think that we have to be very careful at this point that uh, there, you know, people have in large measure had enough of this interference. They would very much like it to stop. But if it does not stop, then we are entering into a very, very dangerous place because then effectively what we've done is that we have eliminated the role of a safety valve in a way that elections play. That every four or five years, people go out there, they uh, vent their frustrations at whoever they want to vent their frustrations, they vote whatever way they want to. And more or less, you know, within... A Pakistani margin of let's say 15-20% you get the result which one would expect but if that's not going to happen now, if now we're going to have effectively elections like we had under military regimes then you're also going to see the growth of agitation 
like we've also had under military regimes. So that is very dangerous for the country. It is very dangerous for uh, society at large. And that can you know, evolve and morph into uh, very, very uh, dangerous things. Dr. Naz, another sort of um, favorite pastime I have is sort of keep going back to parts of the French Revolution to sort of see what happened, particularly in the run-up to this. I think when at least I was in undergrad and grad school, the courses touched on what happened during the revolution and, of course, Napoleon and, and what he did. Um, very few classes, at least the ones I sort of sat in on history, took a very deep look at the, the conditions under which the revolution itself began. Um, and so I keep going back to this. And one of the things this past weekend, I was sort of listening to an audio book and a quote from Tocqueville came out that, you know, the worst or the most trickiest time for a bad government is when it sets out to reform, because that's really when things get very hairy um, and anything you do can sort of lead to outcomes that you perhaps can never think about. We're in a similar situation in Pakistan where PDM 2.0, as it's currently slated to take over power again, is has significant questions over its own legitimacy. We know and we've discussed at length on this podcast why that's the case. It has to reform. And when it sets out on the path to reform, as, as terrible as that path might be with the IMS conditions, etc., there's only one way for its political capital, which is down. Um, and, and in a moment where its legitimacy is low, political capital erodes, it has to depend on the sort of you know autocratic tactics to maintain some level of stability on the street. Uh, we will have a test of this in the run-up to the budget, so let's see what happens. Um, but in that instance, again, you know, no geopolitical rents. You've had access to them. Zia got access to them. Musharraf got access to them. How do you then see the the scenarios if you were to game this out in terms of a bad government needing to go on a path to reform with limited legitimacy and no access to geopolitical rents? Um, I just think that this is only a matter of time before this whole hybrid post-2008 system crumbles now but would love your thoughts on, again, based on historical context and what we know of the cyclicality of crises in Pakistan, where do you see things going if you were to think about some scenarios? I think if uh, economic conditions continue to be as bad as they are, or possibly even worsen going up into the next budget, if there is another round of uh, IMF-mandated adjustments to the price levels and everything, uh, then what it will mean is that this government has effectively no breathing space to do anything uh, by way of distributing meaningful favors, spending more on development, uh, initiating some projects that it can at least then show that, you know, here we are and we're trying to do something to improve uh, conditions for ordinary people. Uh, so that is one uh, important element of this, the lack of a fiscal space now. The second thing, of course, is that when it comes to using repression, of course, you can use repression in a surgical way to maintain control. And Pakistani regimes have done so in the past. 
you can even use repression in a slightly more prolonged manner if needed. But that typically requires the imposition of an emergency or the declaration of a martial law. So when we think about open-ended repression in order to deal with the social backlash that will result from harsh economic policies faced by a government whose own legitimacy has a big question mark over it. Uh, I don't really see how a government that is still pretending to be at some level a constitutional government uh, can then engage in that type of a uh, repression. So a military government can and has in our past. So uh, if we think about you know, economic circumstances, they were pretty bad in 1977 when General Ziar took over and they didn't really start getting much better until the early 80s. But by that time, they already had three, four years in power. Uh, same thing with Musharraf in a sense, that when he took over, the country was on the verge of bankruptcy, economic growth, everything had basically tanked. Uh, Those yes, are very important points. Again, if I mean, I want to underline that because, I, you know, a lot of pushback that I received when I mentioned 77 um, or even sometimes the Ubera, the pushback is, well, there was Cito Cento or the American largesse in the Soviet Jihad. And I always have to remind people, as you just signaled as well, that the early wave of repression and consolidation of autocratic power occurred before these geopolitical rents had materialized. So the things economically, politically were far dicier at the beginning, which is when the worst repression happened. And nobody knew that there was a pot of money coming in the 80s to rescue the Zia regime. He had consolidated power in, in without these rents, as people forget now. Yes, yes. And uh, this is something which uh, we see happening in 1977 to 1981. And then we see happening again in 1999 to 2001, where a military regime takes over. It, you know, imposes emergency, gets a provisional constitutional order, does, you know, all the things which military regimes do in order to create a new uh, de facto machinery of government that has some sort of judicial cover. And uh, that regime can then use repression on a much larger scale. But even that, at some point, if it faces uh, determined opposition, will have to enter into some kind of a compromise. So that ability to use repression in the present circumstances is, I think, problematic. It is problematic because a significant chunk of the machinery that would have to be used in order to carry out this repression is also enamored of the party against which that repression will have to be conducted. So it's not really clear how that machinery uh, can be put to work under these circumstances. And I don't think anybody wants to test that out to see how far the average soldier or the police officer is willing to go in repressing people that perhaps has support in their own households. Yes. And that too, to do it for an indefinite period. 
So for instance, going into an election, uh, whatever the three poll rigging that was done, whatever the uh, limitations and sanctions that were inflicted on the PTI and its supporters, a reasonable expectation was that, well, once the election occurs and the PMLN has returned to power as projected by the government through its scientific survey published the day before the election, uh, then the need to continue repressing will diminish. But that clearly has not happened. So that need is still very much there. And this is really sort of, you know, testing uh, the ability of a dual government or a hybrid government to continue with such a prolonged campaign of repression against what is clearly the country's most popular political party. So uh, that uh, is a, a big problem in terms of just the mechanism that you're going to use to uh, carry out this repression. So if you use more repression, you might face an imminent backlash on the street. If you use less repression and you move towards normalization, that would then require some sort of accommodation between the PTI and its supporters and the military establishment and its supporters. So that is where the situation I think currently stands. Last question for you, which is something that I don't have an answer to, and I, I would love your thoughts on, on this as well. It's, it's a thing I've been thinking about, as I alluded to earlier as well, about what it means uh, for the Islamic Republic of Pakistan, which is a federation, that nobody can rule at the center. And this has been an issue since 2018. A coalition was cobbled together to ensure the favorite at that time, Imran Khan, ruled. Now a coalition has been cobbled together with all sorts of things we've talked about to ensure the favorite of this time, Shabash Sharif rules. Um, but if I, at least based on my anecdotal conversations with leaders from across the three big parties, um, none of them want to rule Islamabad. Um, they're all like, this is a, a, a sort of the iron throne that is going to basically behead you if you decide to sit on it at this point, given the economy and everything else. Um, but they all want to rule the provinces that they won. Khyber um, Bakhtunkhwa for KPK, uh, PTI, Punjab for PMLN, Sin for People's Party, and then of course, Balochistan, uh, I am sorry to say to all my Baloch listeners, is a colony of Pakistan proper, and they decide who decides to, who gets to rule there. But there's a movement there as well that they need to pay attention to, and we've talked about on other podcast episodes as well. How do you see this? emergence of the fact that nobody clearly wants to rule the federation in this setup. Of course, if the PTI or anybody had a simple majority, you could, but that simple majority does not suit uh, the, the empire, so to speak. So therefore, it's always a fractured coalition that is cobbled together uh, in the last two instances, at least. Um, but this, I, I'm trying to grapple grapple with this question of the signal or the warning signal this is in terms of a federation where no party in the current setup is comfortable ruling the federation itself. What does that bode for the country is a question I have. And I wonder if you have some thoughts on this as well, or if this is a question you're also thinking about. I think the issue in Pakistan has been 
that uh, since 1953, the overthrow of Khwaja Nazimuddin, the Prime Minister of Pakistan uh, doesn't sit on an iron throne. Uh, he or she sits on an ironic one. And the irony, of course, is that the actual power at the center is not wielded by the prime minister. It is wielded by the military and then the civil service. So at the provincial level, on the other hand, the element of diarchy is somewhat diminished. So a provincial chief minister, even within a hybrid regime, probably has more control over the administration and the setup than the prime minister would over the federal equivalents. So obviously, uh, sitting as the prime minister might carry with it a great amount of uh, prestige, if you will. But uh, fundamentally, uh, it's a very uncomfortable position to be in. Regarding majority, uh, the fact is that the actual majority that a prime minister commands at any point in time has been no protection against being dismissed or otherwise overthrown. That's a very important point. Yeah. So uh, whether the prime minister has a two-thirds majority, as Nawaz Sharif did, the famous heavy mandate of 1977, or whether uh, he enjoys or she enjoys a more slender margin, uh, they can all be sent home. And they can be sent home through soft coups enacted by the president using Article 58 to be back in the day by the judiciary during our own time. Uh, or they can be otherwise uh, chucked out using a vote of no confidence as happened to Imran. Uh, be managed within this sort of uh, setup. So the actual majority that a prime minister commands does not affect their ability to stay in government. What, of course, the majority does do is that even if you yourself are chucked out as a result, as long as the assemblies are not packed up or there is no overt military coup, then at least your assembly and maybe the government of that party can continue till the end of its term. That's what happened to the uh, PMLN between 2018 and 2023, that they lost a prime minister, but they completed their tenure in government. You mean the 2014 to 18 when... Sorry, uh, 2014 to 18. 2014 to 18, that uh, they lost a prime minister in 2017, but they were able to complete their overall... And the People's Party did that when Yusuf Raza Gilani was kicked out exactly. and Pravez Ashraf came in. Exactly, yeah. and he came in. So they completed their tenure in that sense as a government. So those options are there, but clearly under the present circumstances, whoever comes in is going to have to do a lot of tough things on the economy. Whoever comes in is going to either be at loggerheads with the military establishment if they are PTI, or they are going to be perceived to be stooges of the military establishment if they are the PMLN and the People's Party. So in one case, you have the risk of an overt confrontation between the civil and the executive. 
And in the other case, you have a highly uh, ineffective and demoralized quizzling ship that will be in place. Neither is actually capable of making the decisions that Pakistan needs at this point in time. So from the perspective of the state overall, the brilliant minds that have brought us the hybrid regime have placed Pakistan in a lose-lose situation. That either we are in for an intensifying period of civil military conflict between the uh, demos and the Cressy, as it were, or uh, we are in for extremely weak, unstable, and ineffective uh, front men and women sitting in assemblies that the majority of people think have not been elected fairly. So we've ended up in a situation where we have neither legitimacy nor capability. And would you then, uh, last, last point on this, argue in both those scenarios, at least I would, um, that uh, the likelihood of increased repression um, is severe, primarily because in the state, in the case of confrontation, the pull, the plug can be pulled, and then that requires repression, as we've seen in the past and as we've talked about. Whereas in the form of a quizzling uh, hybrid regime, it needs even more repression to maintain some level of stability to stay in power. So either which way we look at it more repression, more nasty stuff happening um, that we all abhor um, is perhaps a more likely scenario, regardless of which way we go now. Well, I think the thing here is that uh, the PTI is likely to form the government in favor of Tunhua. And what that means is that within Pakistan, the PTI would now have a safe haven within which it can operate and regroup and reorganize itself. So if the repression takes place, it will basically have to take place outside of KP. That obviously diminishes the effect of the repression if you can simply hop over a provincial boundary and you know if you're sitting in Islamabad or Rawalpindi, be in KP within a matter of 90 minutes. So that's one element. This could lead to a dismissal of the KP government, to maybe the declaration of an emergency or something to that effect, leading to the dissolution of the KP government prematurely. And that would risk, of course, plunging the province into unrest and maybe even chaos. So either uh, the uh, center will have to accept that the PTI has strategic depth in KP and there's really not too much that can be done about KP as a province. And yes, in the rest of the country, you can give the PTI a hard time. Uh, or they will try to do something incredibly bonkers and incredibly irresponsible and try to overturn the electoral verdict in KP. And that verdict, of course, is so overwhelmingly in favor of the PTI that I don't really see how uh, such an overturning can be uh, managed. I mean, it would, I mean, the risks would simply be too dreadful to contemplate. 
Yeah, and I hope that it doesn't go down that path because KP itself has other more significant issues related to security and the Tariq Taliban Pakistan and an insurgency that's coming back from across the border. So the last thing you want is to inflame the masses in that environment because the consequences are unimaginable. Um, Dr. Niaz, as always, it's a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for indulging me in a history lesson uh, related to these elections. Um, the echoes are familiar. I think some things have changed. But as you said, um, in a country where neither popularity um, nor a significant majority in parliament is a guarantee for a civilian prime minister, I think um, we all don't know where this goes next um, in terms of the growing popularity of Imran Khan, the questions over legitimacy of a PDM 2.0 and the broader economic crisis that is facing the country. Um, I don't see any good paths out at the moment. And I think, you, as you put in your scenarios, there is both options are going to lead to consequences that are not optimal, at least in the near term. But I think perhaps at some level, if those ruling Pakistan showed some level of long-term thinking and forged a consensus for early elections, that might provide a pathway out. But my rebuttal to my own statement there is that if they had that kind of long-term thinking or capacity to make those type of choices, we wouldn't be talking about this in the first place. So that leaves me extremely pessimistic uh, about what's going on. But I'll let you have the last word on this one, um, and then we can close it out. Uh, I think in this respect, what we are uh, really looking at is a system exhausting itself, that it has in a way uh, run through the permutations uh, that it could reasonably be expected to run through. And now we are standing at a point where there are, in terms of uh, popular appeal, one dynamic party, which is the PTI, and where in terms of entrenched coercive power, there is one party in uniform. And for the sake of Pakistan, these two parties need to start talking to each other, need to seriously start working out a way to operate in the same ecosystem. Because if they enter into conflict with each other at this point onwards, and we simply experience another two, three, four years of such instability, I mean, we've already experienced two years or more of such instability, then I really don't uh, see any hope for an improvement on any of the indicators where Pakistan needs to start doing a lot better so, uh, you know, that is something which would require a bit of soul searching on both sides. But I, I'm not really seeing much evidence of soul searching on either side. On that note, uh, as always, pleasure talking to you. Um, enjoy your time in a stable democracy of Liberia. Um, I might Thank in you. a few months talk to you about how in the US, we don't get to experience uh, what you have experienced in terms of a peaceful transition of power in Liberia. But that's a few months away. But uh, wonderful talking to you. And thank you once again for your time. Thank you.